Hello, and welcome to the Gospel Life Community Church Podcast. Good morning. Uh, we are going to be uh, in First John again, and we're going to be in chapter 2. This morning's, uh, of course, the sermon series is that you may know, and what we're talking about is the assurance of our salvation that John addresses in this text. And this morning's message is entitled, God's Command and Christian Love. And the way I would like to begin this morning is to kind of just do not so much a survey, but uh, not a public survey. I'm not going to ask for anybody to tally or to raise hands. But I want you to think uh, just to yourself uh, about the idea of Christian love and, and, or, or brotherly love, as we see in Scripture, this idea of loving your brothers or sisters. Now, when we in our you know, 2021 culture... Uh, oftentimes when we think about loving our brother or loving our sister, when we read that, we think of our flesh and blood. We think of loving our sister or brother, or we think of loving our children in some way. We think of blood uh, relatives. The majority of the time, and I, and I don't believe I'm wrong here, the majority of the time that the Scripture addresses loving your brother or sister, it's not referring to your blood relative. That's not what the authors are generally referring to. They're referring to those individuals that we go to battle with, like side by side, for the faith. The ones that we are serving with daily, hopefully. The ones that we are worshiping, worshiping with Sunday by Sunday. Those individuals that we are laying our lives down for. And so, for instance, when John is going to be talking about laying our lives down for a brother or a sister, he's not really talking about, you know, me laying my life down for my sister or vice versa. He's talking about me laying my life down for Paul Grimes or me laying my life down for George Hellard or vice versa. That's what he's referring to. And I'm afraid that uh, throughout the years... Um, we have we've kind of lost a grip on this idea of <coughs> excuse me the Christian the the family of God the church actually being a family that we may not be united by DNA and we may not be united by the same blood type but we are united by the blood of Christ and that is more powerful than any type of blood that is literal in the scientific sense. And, and I want us to get back to that. I fear that many of the troubles that we see in the church today is a result of the fact that churches have lost the concept of brotherly love. Loving a brother in Christ self-sacrificially. Loving a sister in Christ self-sacrificially. And we're going to talk about that this morning because John places that at, at, at a, in a very prominent place with regards to how we view our own salvation. And, and if I could say it this way, if you love your brother and sister as Christ would have us love, then you can be assured 
likely, that you are of Christ, that you're walking in the light. But if you do not, if you hate your brother and sister, then it is very likely that you are not a believer. And we're going to talk about what that concept of hate is, what that actually is, because I think some of us think that hate means that we want to go and just strangle somebody, right? Well, I mean, I know that there are several people in my life that want to strangle me all the time. That doesn't necessarily mean they want to hate me, all right? But So we're, we're going to walk through that, but what we're going to do this morning is we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to walk through verse by verse. Now, Tiffany, you say, well, don't we always do that? We do, but I, I'm, I'm not going to take them in big chunks. We're going to kind of walk quickly through them, so there's not going to be this massive introduction where I give you an illustration and all that. We're just going to kind of walk through this like we would in a Bible study, okay? Now, I am going to start out by saying this. There are certain things in here you might want me to explore, or if I could say it this way, that I want to explore, but I can't because we don't, this isn't the place for it or the time. And I'm going to point those out. And what I'm hoping for in the future is that in addition to these podcasts that contain the sermons, that I can, that I can record some, more, some shorter and more simple podcasts, or maybe even a video cast, that I explain some of these deeper theological elements. That it's just not appropriate really to go in depth on a Sunday morning uh, uh, because of just the nature of what a sermon is. So we're going to go ahead and get started, and we're going to begin in verse 1. Now I'm going to go ahead and read chapter 2, verse 1, all the way through 10. Uh, We're going to read all the way through this, and then I'm going to break it down verse by verse. So John writes, My little children... I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. Remember that. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for those of the whole world. This is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and yet does not keep his commandments, commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word truly in him, the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The the one who says he is in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness." walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this this time that we read this passage. I I pray that we would would, uh, divide this passage uh, correctly and that uh, you would bless the reading of your word, bless the teaching of your word, Father, and that we would have uh, ears to hear uh, the truth that John has here in front of us and that you would convict us where we fall short. Father, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's go ahead and begin. I want to start, and this, I don't, uh, Derek, don't worry, you don't have this verse. I'm going to read it, and that's okay. And then we're going to get into uh, verse 1 here. Remember that at the end of chapter 1, John writes this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, 
we have make we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So what John is telling us from the get-go here is he's saying that we are all sinners. If you say that you're not a sinner, you're basically lying because God has said you are a sinner. All right? And so we're either we're liars or God is and I'm putting our money on me. Okay? That I'm the liar, okay? And I think that we're all good there. All right? So if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, that's the end of chapter 1. Now, it would have been perfect for us to run right in from chapter 1 into chapter 2. Let's see what John follows with. He says, my little children. Now, when he says my little children, obviously he's not talking about a bunch of kids. He's talking about his church that he is writing to. Okay, He's writing to this church or these groups of churches. He says, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. The reason why John is writing this letter is so that the church would hear what he's writing and that they would apply what he's, what he's teaching them. He's hoping that they will read this letter, that they would be convicted, that they would repent of their sin, and that it would prevent them from sinning in the future. That's the aim. That's, he's a pastor. That's the aim of every pastor. When we get up here, our aim is that we would preach the truth as God has laid it out in front of us and that the congregation would hear the truth, they would apply it, and it would keep them from sinning. That it would keep them walking in the light. That it would keep them following Christ. I mean, that's the aim of every pastor is that we would grow in Christ and that we would sin less. All right, And so John says, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But John already knows that we're going to sin. He already knows that, so he has this caveat in here. But if anyone does sin, I like that he says, if anyone does sin, right? I, I kind of think that he said that with a little bit of a gleam in his eye because he knows that we are. If anyone does sin, what does he say? We have an advocate with the Father. Now, in the Greek, that word advocate is paraclete. And paraclete could mean, could mean advocate. It could mean helper. Uh, it's the same word that John uses for the Holy Spirit when we are in the Gospel of John. He uses that same Greek word, paraclete, that the Holy Spirit is also our helper, but in a different way, okay, in a different way. Jesus, that's why they call Jesus the advocate here. What is Christ doing? It says, if, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So in some way, Jesus is playing a legal role for our sake. Okay, He is our advocate. We know what that is. We have advocates in our, in our, in our own community. Jody knows exactly what an advocate is, right? She advocates on the behalf of children. Is that a correct way of saying that? All right, and so we advocate when we go to the school sometimes, we advocate for our children. So we're sort of there to support and sometimes stand in the gap, if you will, for those, for those kids. Uh, that's what a lawyer does. A lawyer will advocate for his client. Well, Jesus is advocating for us. Now, here's the difference. In this case, Jesus... The sinless one or the righteous one is advocating on the one who is absolutely guilty. Absolutely guilty. You know, you watch uh, Law and Order and Blue Bloods, and what's the defense attorney always trying to do? Many times. Trying to play his cards or her cards the right way to get the person off so that they won't be charged or won't be uh, called guilty, if you will. Well, in this case, we are guilty. There is no way around it. 
So what's happening here is that there is going to be a judgment. There's no way around that. This advocate here in Jesus is not standing in our place to try to get us off from being guilty. What he's doing is we are already guilty. What the aim is is that the judgment, instead of going to be going on the guilty one, is going to go on the sinless one so that he's going to bear that guilt upon himself. It would be like somebody who just caught, was caught red-handed in murder or some other crime. Absol- there's video of it. We know who did it, right? And the lawyer comes in and says, Judge, absolutely, my client did it. There is absolutely no way around it. He is the guilty party. But I am going to take his place with regards to the punishment. The wrath is going to be poured out on me. And that's why it says in verse 2, He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The word there, atoning sacrifice, could be also a word that you all might know, propitiation. Okay? Now let me just say one word about that. Okay? I don't want to get into too much systematic theology and stuff, but let me just share this with you. There are some individuals that believe propitiation is not the right word that it should be expiation. Now you think, well, this is just getting nerdtastic, right? I know Jerry's like, that's what I was wondering, right? Well, why, what's the difference? Here's the difference, okay? Let me just share this with you. If that word, if we translated it directly, was actually expiation, what that means is that our sin was just removed, is that we went from sinners to sinless, all right? That our sin was removed and it wasn't counted against us. That's all that that means, But that's not what's going on here. Yes, our sin was removed, but there is still guilt to be paid. There is still a judgment to be had. And so we're not just having our sin removed, but the judgment that was supposed to be on us is now placed on who? Christ. And that's propitiation, where He is taking our place. it, It has the idea of substitution. Christ is the substitute for us in the Old Testament, when we have uh, the slaughtering of uh, some sort of animal uh, for a uh, during a sacrifice, all right, during worship, though that animal would come up on the altar and they would kill the animal, and that animal was a substitute for the individuals, for the community. It was to act as a substitute. The problem is, it was just an animal, all right. It wasn't doing much good. It was symbolic. It was God called us, called them to do it, but he called them to do it so that it would foreshadow Christ, the ultimate Lamb of God. So when Christ was sacrificed, it wasn't just symbolic, it actually had efficacy. There was, it, it worked, all right? It actually saved us from our sins. He wasn't just a goat. He wasn't just a ram caught in the thicket of bushes. He was the Son of God, the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation of our sin. And it says here, He Himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those for the whole world. Now here's where I could go on for hours talking about what John actually means there. Does John actually mean that Jesus was the atoning sacrifice, not just for you and I, but for the entire world. And the reason I bring that up, and you might not be thinking this on these lines, but some individuals believe that what John is writing here is some sort of universalism. That Christ is the sacrifice for the whole world in the sense that His, that his sacrifice counts for everybody. 
So there, everybody gets the benefit from Christ's sacrifice. But that can't be true. That can't be true. Why can't that be true? Because the rest of this passage actually goes into effect to show that there are going to be individuals who are lost and condemned. So obviously, it doesn't cover everybody. There are individuals that it is effective for, and then there are others that it's not. If we go into the Gospel of John, and we look at John 3, 16 through 18, that favorite passage that we usually stop at the end of verse 16, it goes on and says that those who did not believe were condemned already. So there are individuals from the foundations of the earth that stand condemned. When we go into John chapter 17 and look at the high priestly prayer of Jesus, remember he is praying, and he's not just praying for the whole world, he also prays specifically for those individuals that the Father gave him that are his. So Christians. So this can't mean that everyone's going to be saved. This is likely what it means in coordination with Paul. It likely means this when he says this, that Jesus, that his sacrifice is effective for all the, for the church. When Paul says Christ came and died for the church, meaning those who would be saved, that's whose Christ's sacrifice was effective for. If I could say it this way, not one drop of blood from Jesus was wasted. Not one drop. There is not one person that's going to go to his grave or her grave that was supposed to be saved but didn't get saved. That doesn't happen. Anyone who God intends to be saved is saved. Not one drop of Christ's blood is wasted. So, The atoning sacrifice is effective for all those who would believe, but it also stands to condemn those who don't. Because Christ came as an atoning sacrifice, and what happened? They rejected him, and thus they stand condemned in that place. So in some ways, it was for the whole world. It just means that some actually rejected that sacrifice, and thereby they stand condemned. So why do I go into all that to begin this passage? This is sort of an introduction to what we're going to be talking about, and it's this idea that Christ calls us, God calls us, Christ calls us to a specific uh, ethic, Christian ethic, a specific aim, and that is to mimic or to imitate Christ, as Paul would have it. Our aim is to imitate Christ in all that we do. And where we fall short, Christ stands there in the gap to advocate on our behalf, to cleanse us from all sin because He is the righteous one. However, that does not mean that we should just throw up our hands in the air and say, well, Christ is there advocating, we don't need to worry about it. That's not what the author is saying. And that's where we go into starting in verse 3. So let's read that. Let's look at God's commands, verse 3 through 6. He says, John writes, this is how we know that we know him, if we keep his commands. Now, the majority of people stop right there. They stop at that verse, and they say, oh, I can know that I'm a Christian if I keep his commands. And they forget the rest of the passage. We're not going to do that. We're going to keep on going, because I think John means something very specific here. But I also think that it is more than just one thing. So let's keep going. We do know that we know that we know him, or I could say it this way, we know that we are saved if we keep his commands. The one who says, I have come to know him 
and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. And that just goes to say that a hallmark of a Christian is one who imitates Christ, who follows the commands of Christ. If we fail habitually, if we make a lifestyle out of going against what Christ would have us do, that does not, it, we're not believers. We're not believers. If you have an individual, I, I always laugh. I, watched a, I started watching a show the other day, and it's, uh, you, many of you all have probably seen it, maybe more than once. It's an excellent movie. Uh, Goodfellas, anybody? See that, right? The old, I like mobster movies. I don't know why I like that. Maybe, I don't know. And, and what cracked me up in the beginning of that movie, and I had seen part of it, I, re, I was reminded of, at the beginning of the movie, Ray Liotta is playing this, this main character, right? And at the beginning, he says, as he's a kid, he says, all I ever wanted to do was be a part of the mob. I'm like, what are you, who are your heroes? Where are your parents? You know, did anybody ever buy you a comic book, you know, in your day? But he wants to be a part of the mob. And what I love is that the majority of these mobsters, you know, they're out doing all these ruthless things. I mean, right in the beginning of the movie, what's Joe Pesci doing? Just stabbing somebody in a trunk. I'm like, that's kind of harsh, right? I mean, just sitting there stabbing somebody in the trunk. I'm like, what are you doing? But then at the same, in the same breath, they talk about going to, going to mass over the weekend, you know, and all these sorts of things, that they are, there is a, there is a, a they are divorcing God's, you know, being in Christ or following God or their relationship with God by their actions the rest of the week. Now, that is a very crude example, okay? I don't expect that all of us are behaving like mobsters during the week. If you are, let's talk about after church, okay? But the idea here is it's this idea that they believe that they can commit all these heinous acts, yet they can go in on Sunday, go into confessional, confess their sin, and they're good. Yeah, I might have to stay a couple years in purgatory, but you know, in the end, enough candles are going to be lit and I'm going to be in heaven with the Father. Folks, that is not what we have a picture of. What we have a picture of in Scripture is that those who say they know Christ are individuals who imitate Christ. Christ wasn't a mobster, even when he flipped over the table, okay? All right, so we must imitate Christ. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This is why we have church discipline. Healthy churches discipline their congregation, members in their congregation. And the reason is, is because it is important for us to be able to say, we affirm that the, to the best of our ability that this person is a believer. Now, it is true that we're all sinners. We're all going to sin. But the mark of a Christian is that once we sin, what do we do? We repent of that sin. We repent of that sin. We confess our sin and we chase after Christ again. That's the mark of a believer. The mark of an unbeliever is that we are living and celebrating habitual sin and yet act like there's not going to be any judgment for that. And that's where churches have to stand their, stand their ground and say, this is not the life of a believer. Now, we cannot guarantee that that individual is saved or not saved, but to the best of our ability, that individual is living contrary to the gospel. 
The one who says, I have come to know him and yet doesn't keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. But, verse 5, whoever keeps his word, truly in him the love of God is made complete. This is how we know we are in him, that we are keeping his commands. We know that God's love has been made complete and God is love. Christ's work, on the, what he's saying here, is that Christ's work, is uh, what, what is love that we would give our lives for our brother, right? I'm paraphrasing. The idea is that Christ gave his life for us, the ultimate sign of love. And when he gave his life, it became effective for those, for those individuals who were chosen before the foundations of the earth, and those individuals may bear that out in their lives. So if I see Charlotte throughout the week following Christ, uh, Charlotte and David, David, I want to group you in there too, all right? Charlotte and David are, are walk, doing their daily routine, going through their life, and they're honoring Christ with their life, all right? It doesn't mean they're perfect, but it means that on the whole, their aim is to model Christ in every which way that they can. And what we can say is we can say that the love of Christ has been made complete in them. They are not made out to be liars. Their life is not, is not contradicting their confession, if you will. And so that they can say, we are confident that we are in Christ because we are confident that our aim and our goal is to model Christ in every way that we can. Now, you might say, well, what if somebody is just fooled? What if somebody is just fooled into thinking that they are modeling Christ, but they are not? I don't, I don't know how, how possible that is. I really don't. I think that the majority of individuals who are not saved yet think they are, it's not because they think that they are modeling Christ in every avenue of their life. They know that they are not modeling Christ in their life. They know it. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. It's the idea that we are imitating Christ. If I could say it this way, that the Word of God is made flesh and bone in our lives. That as we follow Christ and imitate Christ, we are putting flesh and bone on the commands that are in His Word. Does that make sense? Does that make sense how, how I'm, I'm talking about that? And so John says, this is how we know that we know Him. We follow His commands. We keep His commands. Now, I'm going to say this generally speaking, that His commands are found in the text, in Scripture. That as we read through God's Word, which we should be doing on a regular basis, all right, that at, we see what God commands of us, what God desires of us, that we are imitating Christ in our lives. However, I believe that the command that John is referring to most supremely, or the one he places highest priority on, is the idea of love. And that's why I had... Uh, had Jody, I think it was Jody, read Matthew chapter 22, or that, that passage where it talks about the greatest command. So Jesus is, is being tested by the Pharisees, and they ask him basically, what's the greatest command, Jesus? And what does he do? He reverts all the way back to Deuteronomy, and he recites the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your 
heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, with all, you know, and there's some different words placed in there depending on which, uh, which of the Gospels you're reading, but it's that idea. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, okay? That's the Shema. And then he says the second is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the greatest commandment is not um, that we should not lie, you know, something specific, we should not steal, that we should not murder, okay? That's not the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment is that we love God, and the second one is like that, love your neighbor. And by the way, just so you'll know, I'm just going to throw this out. If you keep those two commands, you know what you won't do? You won't kill your neighbor, all right? Because loving your neighbor entails that he, he or she must be alive for you to love them, okay? All right, so don't kill them, all right? And don't lie about them, don't gossip about them, don't covet your neighbor's wife, don't, you know, all those sorts of things. So now we're going to go into this third part here, in verse 7 through 10, or ver, uh, 7 through 11, I should say. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. Now, he doesn't say what it is yet. There is some discussion about what John means here. What does he mean by an old command? Does that mean that it was like, you know, like from the beginning of this year? Does it mean it was from the beginning of Christ's ministry? I believe what he means here is that he means that this is a command that was from the beginning of time. That this is something that God has laid out in the beginning of creation. And the reason is, is he uses this phrase, but an old command that you have had from the beginning all right? And that's the same type of language that John uses at the beginning of his gospel where he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Or the same type of language that Moses uses in Genesis when he says, in the beginning, right? And he refers to in the beginning of all creation. And so I think what John is relating to here is he says, the command I am most specifically emphasizing is a command that is so old, it was there in the beginning. All right? And then he says... Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What does he mean by that? So this command is both old and it is new. Whatever this command is, I think this is what he means. This command was instituted by God from the beginning of time, but it was fulfilled by Christ in his ministry that Christ most completely fulfilled it, and you have seen the fullness of this command come to light in the life of Christ. Because that's what we say about the law, right? Christ did not abolish the law. He did what? He fulfilled the law. And so in some ways, Christ has made this command new in his life. So dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old command that you have had from the beginning. The old command is the word you have heard. So they've heard it. They have heard this command from the beginning, all the way back to Deuteronomy. Yet I am writing you a new command, which is true in Him. So you've seen it in Christ. And the reason he says that the darkness is passing away, that is, that's eschatological language. It's language about the coming of Christ, that we are now in the church age, and, the, and Christ's second coming is coming. And so we're in a different age. We're in this age of grace instead of the law. And so the darkness is passing away, and the new light is true light, is already shining. And so the light of Christ is now shining. And so we can see this. And this is what he says. The one who says he is in the light, 
but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. So if you say that you are a follower of Christ, yet you hate your brother or sister, you are not telling the truth. You cannot be a Christian saying that you love Jesus while at the same time despising his other children. You can't do it. It doesn't work like that. Now, does that mean that you can't have disagreements and stuff like that? We're going to get into that here in a second. I'm going to throw some application here in a minute, but I just want you to get this in your minds. If you say that you are a Christian, but you hate or despise your brother and sister in Christ, all right, then you, you're lying. You cannot be a Christian. Verse 10, the one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. The model of Christ, or what does it look like to imitate Christ? Most completely, it means that we are loving one another with a self-sacrificial love. That we are willing to sacrifice ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters. But the one, the one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. That means no sinning. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. And so what is, to summarize what has John said here, it says this, ending in chapter 1, if you say, you're a, if you, say you have no sin, you're a liar because we're all sinners. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ. He is the righteous one. He will stand in the gap. He is faithful to forgive you of your sins. If, and I will throw this in here. As we confess and we repent of our sins, Jesus is faithful. All right? So that's who Jesus is. So if you sin, you have an advocate. Now, I'm writing this to you so that you do not sin. All right? And this is how you know that you are a follower of Christ, if you follow His commands. That's, that is a sure way, a surefire way of knowing that you are in Christ. And one of the most pivotal commands, in fact, the greatest command, is that we would love our brothers and sisters. That's the command, apparently, that many Christians then, and I would even say now, struggle to follow. If you say you love God, but you hate your brother or sister... You are not a believer. Now, to close, I want to just throw a little bit of application to this. What does that mean? Because I guarantee you that if we did a, a, a survey of you all, every one of, none of you all would probably come out, even if it was anonymous, and say that I hate my brother or sister in Christ. Okay? So what does John mean by this? I think it's more than this, this kind of like arbitrary hate-love, okay? I think it means more than that. What is, what is it to love someone, like really love someone as Christ loved us? It means to lay our lives down for them. That's what it means. It means for me to say that I love David and Charlotte or Sue or Debbie, it means that I am willing to lay my life down for them. And I don't mean just make it an inconvenience for myself. It means that I am willing to give my life for theirs. 
Remember, we're supposed to be imitating Christ. And what did Christ do for us? He laid his life down for us. Folks, it would be easy for me to lay my life down for Lucas. That would be easy. Okay? He's my son, and I'm willing to do that. All right? Am I willing to do that for one of you all? That is the ultimate act of love that we would give our lives for our brothers and sisters. I, I love reading about these, uh, and I think of, of individuals in the service, in the military, these guys who are in a group, they're, they're in battle or in combat, and all of a sudden a grenade comes, and what does the guy do? He runs and he jumps on the grenade, and it explodes, killing or gr gravely injuring him, but what happens to all of his brothers and sisters in, in combat with him? He gave his life so that others might live. What a, a tremendous act of service, a tremendous act of love, if you will. Are we willing to do that both metaphorically and literally? Are we willing to do that? So what does it mean to hate then? So are we willing to give our lives for somebody else? And oftentimes that just means, many times that just means inconveniencing ourselves. Here's one of the things that I see today, that I, that I see, and, and I won't categorize it as hate, but I will definitely not put it in the boat of loving our brother and sister. We live in the age where we are more socially connected than we've ever been before. But at the same time, we are more socially disconnected. When somebody says, how many friends do you have? Oh, I've got 700 friends. Really? Because I've got like, you know, like, you know, friends that I go like to the mall with and stuff like that, you know, outside of church, I've got like five or six people, <laughs> you know, I'm like, how do you have 700? Oh, well, they're all, they're all on Facebook. Now I get it. But that's where our society is, that our friends are no longer individuals that we'll go hike with or we'll go out to eat with or go to Washington, D.C. with, right? And, and, and break bread with. They're individuals that we click like on or we laugh on or something like that. We are so socially disconnected right now. And I think that it has impaired our ability to love one another faithfully, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's one of the ways that I see it playing out, especially in the church. We've gotten to the point we have disconnected our fellowships with one another, and COVID did not help over this last year and a half with that. But we have so disconnected that we now are impaired in thinking the best of one another. Instead of thinking the best of one another, we, all, we are now inclined to think the worst. And what I mean by that is that we don't give one another the benefit of the doubt. For instance, we have one Christian brother or sister that is walking through life, all right, and they're walking, in through, walking through life in such a way, all right, that other Christians are, are viewing this, okay? And oftentimes our ability to view it is not in person, but it's on Facebook, right? Because that's what we post. We post our entire lives, even what we ate, okay? And I can't believe we don't post what we regurgitate. It just amazes me that we don't do that, all right? But um, somebody probably has, okay? But we post our entire lives on that, and what happens is that these other individuals, instead of celebrating it, what are they doing? They're judging that. 
Because we now, instead of thinking the best, and then what happens is that one of us slips or one of us does something that another individual doesn't understand or doesn't grasp or something, and instead of thinking the best or thinking that they had the best intentions or thinking that they had the, the best, I, the, 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 uh, whatever it might be, what do we do? We think that they have the worst intentions. We go to the nth degree of terrible, all right, and place that on an individual. And I see this happening day in and day out. And I think the reason this happens is because our, our primary source of relationship is not face-to-face in worshiping with one another, but it's all done digitally. It's a lot easier to dismiss an individual when you're dismissing them online than if you are dismissing them when you're sitting across from one another, breaking bread with one another. Now, why do I say that? It is difficult for you to love your brother and sister the way that Christ loved the church when you are not regularly fellowshipping and worshiping with one another. And I don't mean Sunday by Sunday. I mean regularly. These brothers and sisters did not just meet one day a week. They met daily, oftentimes, in one another's homes, encouraging one another, supporting one another. The life of the believer The life of the church is not a weekly thing. It is a daily thing. It's a daily habit that we get into. If I could point it out this way, very few of us are willing to give our lives for a brother or sister in Christ who we only know and see on Facebook. We're just not. Because it's not a real relationship. Facebook relationships aren't real. This is real. This is real. That's a real relationship. So what is my aim here? What do I want us to do? My hope for us is that over the coming months and coming days, weeks, months ahead, that we wouldn't be that we wouldn't be so focused on on um, let me put it this way. My main goal for us as the body of Christ is for us to love one another the way Christ would call us to love with one another. That means putting up with one another sometimes. I mean, I have to put up with Debbie all the time. All right? Trust me, there is a love of Christ there. No, I'm playing. Okay? (laughs) But in in all seriousness, all right, it means loving one another. It loves one another with their faults. It means assuming the best out of one another. I am so thankful that the majority of individuals, when they see me, my goofiness, all right, they generally think the best out of me, okay? I revert back to that day about a couple of years ago when I came in here dressed in like, we're just going to say I dress like somebody, all right? And that 99% of the people, I'm sure that there was somebody just was like, in fact, I know there was somebody like, oh my gosh, all right? What's that? Took me out of the wheel. At, all right. But, I, but that the majority, and I'm sorry, Kristen, you don't even know what I'm talking about. I've got pictures. Okay. But I come walking in here, and the majority of you says, that poor man. But he had the best of intentions. All right. Or is like what we like to say, bless his heart. 
right? I mean, but that's the aim, that we, have the, that we, we think the best of one another. And when there is confusion and when there is difficulty or when there is disagreement, that we just don't go behind and, and like put, a, put an angry face and then talk behind somebody's back, but that we come to Debbie or we come to Sue or we come to David and we talk about that and we converse about it. We break bread over it and we love one another because that's what the church does. That's how we love one another. We love one another in that way. We cannot love one another from afar nearly as well as we can love one another in here. And so that's just my encouragement to you this morning. How do we know that we are in Christ? Well, first, we keep His commands. And that's all of His commands. But secondly, it's that we love one another, which is a priority in the hierarchy of commands go. Because that was one of the major flaws of the Pharisees. They were really good at keeping the law. They were really bad at loving their neighbor. And therefore, they were not believers. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Believe me, we always give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. Now it's time for us to give one another the benefit of the doubt. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we love you and we ask your blessings on the church. Help us to model Christ in our lives. Help us to imitate Christ in all that we do. Help us to love our brothers and sisters. Help us to love one another and hate sin. Father, we ask your blessings on us. Help us to repent and believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.